The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or positions of anyone at Innovative Sim Solutions or our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Echo Healthcare. Echo Healthcare is a leading provider of hyper-realistic medical simulation solutions, immersive virtual learning environments, and educational content with a focus on improving patient safety and lives. Echo Healthcare is now offering Seven Sigma intubation and airway management task trainers under their robust product portfolio. Contact Echo Healthcare today for any of your simulation training needs. Welcome to the Sim Cafe, a podcast produced by the team at Innovative Sim Solutions, edited by Shelley Hauser. Join our host, Deb Tauber, and co-host, Jared Jeffries, as they sit down with subject matter experts from across the globe to reimagine clinical education and the use of simulation. So pour yourself a cup of relaxation, sit back, tune in, and learn something new from the Sim Cafe. Welcome to another episode of the Sim Cafe. I'm your host, Deb Tauber. I'm here with my co-host, Jared Jeffries, and today we are truly blessed to have a very, very special guest, Dr. Pam Jeffries. Dr. Jeffries, how would you like me to refer to you during this episode? Oh, please, please call me Pam. Fine. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Now, Jared, do you want to call her Pam or Mom? <laughs> That's a good question, but I'll try to go with Pam for the duration of, of the episode. Okay. Pam, why don't you share your journey into simulation with our listeners? Okay. Thanks, Deb, for having me on. This is a pleasure to be on your podcast. I know it's going well, and I'm glad to serve as one of your guests. So describe my special journey and how I got involved with the pedagogy for simulation. This goes back to really early 2000s when I was at Indiana University School of Nursing. I was teaching students, many undergraduate students, and I was even in lab at times. And I saw the very stodgy ways that we were teaching students back in the early 2000s. For instance, in the lab, it was pretty passive. We would tell students what to do, then they might demonstrate. But in the meantime, when we told them what to do, it was just very boring, not engaging. So I was always looking for creative and engaging ways to stimulate students and really enhance learning. So early on, I read the work of Dr. Howard Barrows, B-A-R-R-O-W-S. He was early 1900s. He was looking at standardized patients, some of the first ones. And it was just interesting work where, you know, he, his team were training actors, training actors and actresses how to be standardized patients. And then you would immerse the students in these encounters and clinical would become alive, right? Students were engaged and yet in a very safe environment, they were engaging in, with these standardized patients. So I think that's when I started beginning to think, wow, this is a great new pedagogy, active learning for our students and really immersing them in experiential learning. So early on at IU, they had grants, also small grants within the university, partnering with the hospital and the School of Medicine. So back in the early 2000s, I partnered with Dr. Scott Ingham. He was a pediatric surgeon. 
but he trained third-year medical students. So it was quite a core, they were correlation. It was great with our senior nursing students or junior nursing students. So Scott and I put in our first grant to get our high fidelity mannequin, which is a man from Lairdall. I think it was called Sinman at the time. But anyway, that's how simulation was started at clear back in the day at Indiana University School of Nursing Medicine and with the hospital at that time. So that's how I began my journey. Thank you. How did you decide to come up with a framework? How did they come about? Well, the framework. So probably the most impactful part of my simulation story was, I think it was 2003 when the National League for Nursing, there was a call to be a program director to conduct simulation research. So I was getting engaged with this pedagogy, experiential learning. I already knew a faculty member back then. If you're going to create change, you have to get the evidence. You have to get the research. It's not good enough to just to say, Deb and Pam believe in this pedagogy, therefore we need to adopt it in our curriculum. So I was after, you know, I was reading the literature and wanted to create a simulation study, but also was really into the simulation. So when the National League for Nursing did a call for a program director, I did put my name in with the support from Indiana University and got the job working with Dr. Marianne Rizzolo and Dr. Terry Valiga. And then they picked eight program coordinators across the United States to work on this project to develop simulation research. So at the time, again, in 2003, there was, everything was very embryonic. If you went to the literature and looked at simulations, they just said, we did a simulation and students liked it. There wasn't a lot of evidence. We didn't even know how to do simulations. We didn't, it, it was very anecdotal at the least on the evidence of using simulations. So I felt as a program director, I had an opportunity to create a recipe, a roadmap, if you will, on how to do simulations, how to implement them and evaluate them because we were learning ourselves. So working with the eight program directors geographically represented across the United States, we developed a framework. It was a simulation framework at the time. It ended up being an NLN Jeffrey simulation framework. And eventually in 2015, it became the NLN Jeffrey simulation theory. But what we did with the, not just myself, but with eight program directors, we across again, geographically represented and representing associate and baccalaureate programs. There was one diploma program at the time. Uh, we looked at a theoretical model. We wanted to build it on theory because if we were going to get into the science and the evidence, we needed, needed theory. Also, we looked at constructs, what it took to build a simulation model. And in the literature, we all dove into the literature and came up with these constructs. If you remember early on the framework, there was always a teacher involved. There was a student or a learner or a participant, whatever you want. Also in the literature, it talked about the educational practices, meaning active learning, direct feedback, student-faculty interaction, collaboration. And then there was that simulation design. How do you design a simulation that suspends disbelief? You know, you wanted the fidelity, the reality. So those things were in the simulation design. And then the whole point of conducting and immersing students in simulation was to get an outcome, right? Whether it was to teach them more how to... Um, manage pain or care for a diabetic patient with a hypoglycemic event. So there was always an outcome. There was a purpose to that simulation. 
So we grew to learn all simulations needed to have objectives that were measurable. And the simulation, that was just part of the essential ingredient of creating a simulation. Anyway, bottom line, myself and the A program coordinators, we created this framework and we developed a book. We created a book and it came out, I think it was in 2005. I had an article that came out on this framework that was brand new that we were really testing and we encouraged people to test it. You know, refute the model, refute, just test it. What are we doing wrong? And ironically and thankfully, a lot of those concepts struck and it continued to be tested. And many people, I, I set the framework of the groundwork for much of the simulation research that embarked thereafter. And then in 2000, probably 12 or 13, NLN partnered with INAXO. Actually, I think it was INAXO's idea to start looking at these constructs and the relationships. And can we determine that that's a mid-range theory? And they worked with Beth Rogers, who was a simulation theorist, leading a task group, all kinds of faculty leaders and colleagues across INAXO and NLN to see if we could really, truly label it as a theory, which we did in 2015. And, you know, the article came out. There's all kinds of simulation articles through the INAXO journal. In addition, the book came out, the monograph in 2015, and it was just updated a year ago through the NLN. So indeed, it became a mid-range theory and very, very proud. That's probably one of the most impactful endeavors. And it was not just me. It was a group endeavor with my faculty colleagues and leaders and those original eight program directors when we got into the heavy literature looking at that. But we felt we delivered to the community, not just faculty working in simulations, but graduate students, doctoral students, others across the health profession, an easy framework that's grounded in theory, which was the constructivist learning theory was one. Sociocultural learning theory was another piece of it because we built it upon a, a theoretical foundation. Thank you. Go so ahead. looking at that, though, one, a couple of questions is what were, especially in the early days in, say, 05 to 08, what were some of the biggest challenges you had surrounding this or what would you have done differently knowing what you know now? Thank you for the question. One of the biggest challenges probably, is it right? Is it correct? Mm. When you put a, a model out, it was a framework at that time. I mean, it's to be tested. I mean, the challenge was you can't test the whole thing. You can test components of it. That's why I even talked to graduate students. You know, many people tested the debriefing component, right? What do we need to debrief? What are those essential ingredients when you debrief? What about the design, the fidelity? How do you suspend disbelief? Many went into looking at the participant. Are there certain elements that the learner needs to know? You know, now we have the whole new concept of pre-briefing and debriefing. Does it make a difference with the demographics, whether they're old, young, male, female, where they come from? No. Also the roles. Can we, can we put four students in a simulation or six or 10? What, what are some of the best practices? So people began to test that and I mean, when you put something out there like that, when you say the challenge, you don't know if it's, I mean, you're putting it out there. You're putting yourself out there to, to, for people to test it. We're just saying this is one approach, right? This is the framework we use based on the literature and the findings we had. And this is at the time. But ironically, this grew and stayed pretty true over time. 
which I go back with the eight program coordinators and myself and working with the NLN, I, we, we put our best foot forward and it seemed to work pretty well. That was one of the biggest challenges. Is, is it going to be correct or not? And then the other thing, another challenge just, and everybody has dealt with this in the simulation world. How do we know simulations work? Do simulations work? Should we embrace simulations in the curriculum or not? You're always being compared to the standard practice, and that's, you know, real clinical practice within a real clinical setting with real patients. Were they ever looking at aviation or other industries in terms of that? Uh, there, there was work? research into that, and they would quote aviation and all that. But mm-hmm. healthcare is very different than aviation. I mean, there's sure, so many sure. multiple variables. Where in aviation, you can control most. I mean, you can't control the weather, but... There's less variation, I would say, versus a healthcare team. And a healthcare team looks different on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. patients look different, present differently, et cetera. Yeah. No, those are absolutely great points that you bring up. I know that, you know, during all my master's work, I, I referred to your framework for everything. That was always my go-to. So thank you for, for that. Do you have a favorite or most impactful simulation story that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Hmm. Probably the most impactful was when I worked with the eight program directors, coordinators through the NLN, and that's how it all kind of launched. When we were all working together, I traveled so much. I went to all their eight sites. We were trying to get buy-in to simulation and the work that we were doing. So I was visiting their faculty, their schools. I think that year at Christmas, I bought all the Christmas presents at airports. <laughs> Anytime <laughs> anybody got a present, it came from the boutique. The yeah, we remember that. that. You know, whatever. I was just traveling so much. But the most impactful part probably, and that could have been in 2006 when we held our first conference at the University of Maryland to roll out the framework and to roll out really, it was kind of announcing what we saw the simulation pedagogy was within nursing. So we had people come from all over the United States. I think it was co-sponsored, of course, by the NLN at the time. And we, we delivered, we performed simulation from a live audience and just getting people it was kind of the first foray if you will of seeing what a simulation is and the immersion and we actually had real students from the university of maryland and put them in and we were myself and the eight program coordinators we were all very nervous about that is it going to work are people going to embrace it what are they going to think about that pedagogy but anyway, the rest is history. You know, it was embraced and other people started trying, adopting. And you always had the naysayers out there saying, oh, I don't know if students can really learn from simulation or is it a good way to substitute hours with clinical or not? So that did happen. And then the rest is history. We went forward. The other, I would just be remiss if I didn't mention, uh, I was also a consultant on the National Council State Board of Nursing, big study. That was a nationwide, big national landmark study. And that was in 2014 when we came out with results from 10 schools of nursing across the U.S. And we were addressing the question, do simulations work? Can we substitute them for real clinical time or not? Or does it make a difference in a detrimental way if we substitute so many hours? And at the time, if you remember, we had three arms of the study across 10 schools nationally. One arm was the control. Another was 25% of simulations were substituted for real clinical time. 
and the other arm was 50% of simulations were substituted. And when I say 25, 50%, that was all across seven clinical courses. And when I say 50%, if you had 100 hours in pediatric clinicals, then 50 hours were in SIM, it was a one-to-one -one ratio, and 50 hours on the pediatric unit. So that was a big, large two-year study that was conducted, and I felt very honored to be part of the National Council State Board of Nursing consultant on that study, working with Susie Carden Egren and Jennifer, who actually led the study. Honestly, that data came out, and there was a, that was very impactful because there's an article that really helped shape policy in nursing education for board regulators. And this study was for board regulators because the boards were saying, no, you can't do simulations to substitute. Oh, you can use up to 25%. But a lot of these policy decisions at the state level, because we know our state board of nursing's first state, they were being made without the evidence, without any research. So this large landmark study provided the evidence for board regulators. And today you can see the language. They, they looked at the study. I'm very proud of that. State of Arizona, I think, was the first one that came out with some of the guidelines and like a guideline, they said you need to use inaxial best practices, the standards, which are defined. You need to, you know, make sure faculty are developed. You need to use a framework. You need to use a debriefing. So it was all, they were using the study to dictate their policies, which is exactly what we wanted. So that's a very proud moment to see those policy changes across the state level. Thank you. And it had to be a very proud moment. That uh, study is referenced on a daily basis in conversations. Also, you have to be very, very proud of your son, Jared. I have had the honor of knowing him for about since I'd say September or October, and I absolutely love working with mm -hmm. him Thank and uh, having him as my co-host. And I want to ask you for a minute, how do you like being a grandmother? Oh, thank you. Yes, I had an amazing opportunity in November to have my first grandchild, Ella Tyson Jeffries. Of course, she's adorable, beautiful, most beautiful baby, in addition to my <laughs> four kids. <laughs> thanks. I've ever seen. She's great. She's here in Nashville Chiller. with me now, and it's wonderful seeing her. She's, of course, smart, clever, animated, and adorable. Very curious. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Do you have anything that you want to share with us, like any aha moments, something that uh, you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, thanks for that question. And yes, as you know, through the NLN and this, uh, through the National League for Nursing and the work I've done with them, but we've done several books to disseminate the work and disseminate the evidence. And the most recent one, just I think it was launched at NLN. It was the second edition for the Advanced Clinical Simulations in Nursing ed Education, Advanced Concepts, Trends, and Opportunities. So to me, that's really important work to make sure we continue to get the most current updated evidence and get it disseminated out there. The evolution of simulations is continually changing. It's not static. We're in a dynamic environment. In fact, what we knew five years ago is almost stagnant. Now we just have to keep up. So I'm very pleased to continue to do that. And that's probably what I'm very passionate about now to keep up with the research and the trends. And daily, weekly, I'm monitoring, watching that, even though I'm a dean at the Vanderbilt School of Nursing, I still have my passion and my research scholarship focus in the area of simulation. The other thing I'll just let you know, it's on the horizon. 
We actually have a new book coming out. We're working with Walters Clearon, and I'm working with Dr. Pam Slavin-Lee. She's a nurse practitioner, but this book will launch, I think it's January in a year. December, January, don't quote me on that, but it's a book and it's really about implementing new AAC and essentials. It's a practical guide for nurse practitioners using simulations for competency-based education. And I think in this day and age with nursing, as we have shifted with through our essentials with competency-based outcomes, simulation is very, very key. It, it will not go away. We just need to keep advancing our work in simulations and looking at the models and how we're measuring, uh, getting the metrics and the outcomes using simulation. So that book is written by very many colleagues that are nurse practitioners and have gotten in the evidence and the science and the practicality. So I wanted to put a plug into that that will be forthcoming and you're probably hearing it first here. And kudos to all my colleagues who have put a lot of effort into that book. So we're poised and waiting, but it's with Walter's clear at this time. Thank you. Jared, do you have anything you yeah. want to ask? Yeah. One last question for you, because I know we have to get off here, but as you see it today, based off one foot in, I don't say one foot out, but you know, straddling between different different hats within your professional life, what, to the best your best guess, is the most difficult thing holding the healthcare simulation industry back? What is holding the simulation industry back? Probably knowledge and resources and support. I'll go with knowledge first folks out there that want to embark on simulation or they do embark on simulation or deans or leaders want our faculty to embark on simulation. But if you don't have the full scope of knowledge and you give them the mannequin, but not faculty development, that's not the full package, right? You can't just give a mannequin or a room and think somebody knows the simulation pedagogy. Also, the simulation directors, they need to be valued, respected, make sure their workload aligns with what they're doing because it is a lot of work. Uh, creating those and working with faculty on this experiential learning. So that's about the knowledge and more faculty development is needed all the time, all the mm -hmm. time to mm -hmm. ensure that we're using best practices and the latest evidence within this pedagogy. The other thing is just support and resources. It takes money, it takes time, you know, whether you're hiring a simulation team, you're substituting simulations for real clinical time, continue to demonstrate the value of that. When I say other resources, whether that's high fidelity mannequin, whether that's virtual simulations, you know, you're purchasing the software for the students, equipment to suspend disbelief. You need to have real equipment that, or simulated equipment that looks real to ensure, you know, high quality simulation. So those are some of the things I think were past. Jared, you know, do simulations work? I think people do know they work, but there's still people hesitant on how much can be substituted, including state board of nursings, including I'll say professional organizations when NOF, when you say they can't count simulations unless it's over 750 clinical hours. So those are still challenges that we deal with when where's the evidence on that? But a lot of these rules and regulations and standards are made without the evidence. Yeah. And your thought with the knowledge piece, you know, as we all know, the, you know, give a man a fish, feed him for a day and teach a man a fish, feed him. But it's, it's more of, you know, that man still needs a fishing pole. And so if you don't have mm -hmm. the right resources or the actual tool in order to complete the activity, you're still at that square one. So, yeah, right. I completely agree. Resources are needed development, but people forget mm -hmm. about that. The faculty mm -hmm. development is a huge issue. 
it was 10 years ago. It still is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, you got to have leaders that believe in the pedagogy. I think that's what I can do in my leadership role. Any chance I get, it's really to foster the understanding within not only nursing leadership, but across the health professions, the importance of faculty being developed in this pedagogy. It's not like just put a mannequin and put it in a room and, hey, you know, create this simulation. It, there's a lot of knowledge and skills needed. That's why that framework slash theory, the mid-range theory is important. You can look at that. It's a very simplistic follow through, but those components are needed. Thank you so very much. And we know that uh, we both have a lot of things going on today. So I'm going to just thank you for being here with us today and sharing everything that you do. And if our listeners want to get a hold of you with a question or support you in any way, where would you like them to go? Oh, they can just email me if they want. That's fine. <laughs> Pamela.jeffrey.vanderbilt.edu. Okay. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, Deb and Jared. I appreciate it. Thank you. It. Appreciate the time. Bye-bye. Happy Have a good day. Simulating. Thanks to Echo Healthcare for sponsoring this week's podcast. Contact Echo Healthcare to find out more about their new Seven Sigma intubation and airway management task trainers. Thanks for joining us here at the Sim Cafe. We hope you enjoyed. Connect with us at www.innovativesimsolutions.com. And be sure to hit that like and subscribe button so you never miss an episode of the Sim Cafe.